at the Chicago Civic Center on Friday, August the 23rd of 1968, a left-wing political group prepared a bid to challenge for the U.S. presidency. Just as they began their announcement, though, the candidate, along with several close aides, was arrested by the Chicago police. The aides were bailed out of jail later that day, but the candidate himself was never heard from again. It was speculated that the chief of police had later cooked and eaten him for dinner. This was the eve of Vice President Hubert Humphrey's Democratic National Convention. Humphrey had earned the Democratic Party nomination following the assassination of John F. Kennedy and would face Richard Nixon in the general election later that year. Much like the most recent U.S. election, the prospect of a choice between Nixon and Humphrey proved unsatisfying to many voters, especially on the left. Between dropping acid and vibing out to Hendrix, the Beatles and Janis Joplin, many in the hippie movement were also protesting years of escalating involvement in the war in Vietnam and slow progress towards racial desegregation. To those who sought to overthrow the established order, Humphrey and Nixon were one and the same. So one political activism group called the Youth International Party Line decided to take a stand by nominating a candidate to challenge for the highest office. He was 145 pounds, black and brown, with a prominent snout. They called him Pigasus. Pigasus grew up on a farm, but was now the figurehead of a movement. He became so famous, in fact, that his aides claimed a threat to his life, and they demanded in a letter to President Lyndon B. Johnson that he be offered the same Secret Service detail as any other candidate gets and be included in White House foreign policy briefings. Though his previous political experience was limited, Pegasus offered a unique policy agenda. His supporters described him as the ideal candidate because, quote, he was born in the slums of a pigsty, he's many colors, and he's going to be slaughtered. Most presidential candidates have a plan for what they're going to do on their first day in office. And so did Pegasus. His supporters were, quote, going to roast him and eat him. For many years, the Democrats have been nominating a pig and then letting the pig devour them. We plan to reverse the process. End quote. It was, you'd have to say, a more ambitious plan of action than either Humphrey or Nixon were offering. If we can't have him in the White House, one party member told the Montreal Gazette, we can have him for breakfast. Outside the Chicago Civic Center on the morning of August 23rd, the scene was mad. Tens of thousands of protesters met with 12,000 police officers, 7,500 army and 6,000 National Guard troops. In the midst of it all, a small station wagon pulled up to the Civic Center Plaza. Around 200 protesters, alongside reporters and just over a dozen policemen and city detectives, stood waiting. Some 50 members of the party passed around pamphlets and held up signs. Pig power and live high on the hog. 
out of the car stepped a party leader, Jerry Rubin, holding the candidate for office in his arms. We want pig! We want pig! chanted the raucous crowd. Just moments into his campaign announcement, though, police closed in. Pegasus and other members of the party were taken into custody. Later that day, an officer called out the names of each of the arrested as they sat in holding cells. You guys are all going to jail for the rest of your lives, he said. The pig squealed on you. Hours later, the humans were released from jail, but Pegasus did not go with them. Rumors spread that Chicago's police chief ate Pegasus. The Chicago Tribune reported that the candidate was transferred to the city's anti-cruelty society. His so-called inauguration ceremony, scheduled to coincide with the date of Nixon's inauguration ceremony, never came to pass. Though that August day marked the beginning and end of his candidacy, Pegasus' legacy continued on through his quote-unquote wife, Mrs. Pegasus. A couple of days before Richard Nixon was anointed the 37th U.S. president, a small protest was held before the Washington Monument featuring the Youth International Party candidate's spouse. Midway through the demonstration, amid songs and chants, the candidate for first lady escaped her pen and began frolicking about the monument grounds. She was chased around the lawn by three policemen on horseback, two in patrol cars and one by foot. According to sources, Mrs. Pegasus and her husband lived out the reminder of their days outside of the media spotlight on a farm in upstate Illinois. Hi, I'm Ran Levy, and you're listening to a podcast about hacking. Perhaps it's not obvious yet how Pegasus, America's yummiest presidential candidate, relates to what we typically talk about on this show. Hacker culture, quote-unquote, is a loaded term and not so easily bottled into one thing. It spans the ideological spectrum, represented in equal parts by apolitical technology enthusiasts and malevolent sores of chaos. Over the years, it has been shaped by political movements, both above and below ground, as well as developments in technology and the market. The history of hacking and hacker culture is most often told from the late 80s onward, but its origins began decades earlier. For instance, perhaps the most influential hacker magazine, 2600, the Hacker Quarterly, began in 1984 as the spiritual offspring of a hacker zine that had begun publishing 13 years prior. That zine, titled Youth International Party Line, Yipple for short, reflected the hippie activist views of its parent organization youthful energy, a fighting spirit, and revolution against the powers that be, sprinkled with some light satire from the people that brought you Pegasus. It was conceived by two young men, Al Bell, whose true identity is unknown to us today, and A.B. Hoffman, leader of the hippie New Left Youth International Party. 
According to legend, they came together on May 1st, the date celebrated as International Workers' Day every year by communists and socialists, to conceive of a publication that would both bring together technologists and challenge the authority of the nation's largest corporate monopoly. The Bell Telephone Company was founded by Gardiner Green Hubbard, father-in-law to Alexander Graham Bell in 1877. Being the sole proprietor of a powerful early-stage technology, the company found great initial success. Problematically, even many years after their origin, when other companies had the capability and finances to develop their own phone systems, Bell nonetheless retained a kind of monopoly over their market. It was 1894 when Alexander Graham Bell's exclusive patent expired and 6,000 new companies entered the industry. But they didn't last long. In 1913, Bell's holding company, American Telephone and Telegraph Company, later rebranded as AT&T, settled an antitrust lawsuit laying the groundwork for their sole market dominance. By 1940, Bell had evolved into what you'd call a natural monopoly. They'd long ago defeated their only serious rivals in the market, Western Union, and now controlled essentially the entire communications infrastructure of North America. Because the industry has very high barriers to entry, you can't just go out and build a telephone network like you can open up a shop, no other person or company could reasonably enter the phone business without being crushed like an ant. So, without protest from the US government, Bell essentially was the telephone for the majority of the 20th century. They set the rules, they set the prices, and there was no alternative. They even took a nickname, Ma Bell, later Pa Bell, for their domineering, fatherly role over American society. But things were about to change. It began with truck drivers hauling various commodities between the cities of Chicago and St. Louis in the late 1960s. The truckers had two-way radios which they used to communicate between themselves and with their operators. But those radios had very limited range, which made such communication difficult. Enter MCI. MCI was a telecommunications company founded in 1963, and its plan was to build a series of microwave relay systems that could extend the range of truck radios. A trucker could pick up his headset in Chicago, press the push-to-talk button, and his voice would be relayed from one microwave tower to another, all the way to St. Louis. It was a great plan and a great technological innovation, but there was a catch. To make MCI's system really useful, it had to be connected to the rest of the telephone system, or else it would be restricted to a very small number of users. The problem was that the telephone system was controlled by Bell, and Bell had no incentive whatsoever to allow a potential competitor into its system. So they didn't. MCI couldn't connect its relay system to landline telephones, and so their whole business plan was in big risk. 
This kind of monopolistic behavior made Bell a prime target for the ire of two very different ideological groups. One group was the people who viewed monopoly as a threat to technological innovation. With no competition, there's much less pressure to develop new technologies, and sometimes even more pressure to restrict innovation, as in this case where Bell was fighting MCI's new technology. The second group were anti-capitalists, like A.B. Hoffman, who saw Bell as, quote-unquote, the man, a symbol of tyranny against the ordinary citizen. Hoffman wasn't interested in technological innovation per se, and I'm pretty sure he didn't much like MCI any more than he did Bell. For him and his fellow party members, MCI was probably just another faceless corporation. But somehow, both groups found Bell a common enemy. Hoffman named his Zinn Youth International Party Line, a clever play on the name of his political organization, the Youth International Party, with the concept of a party line. Party lines are foreign to us today, but at their height in 1950, they serviced a full three-quarters of Americans with telephones in their homes. The concept was straightforward. Instead of connecting a direct line between your home and the telephone company's headquarters, multiple homes, even a small neighborhood of homes, could be connected to the same line. Doing so provided cost savings for the customer because Bell would save on equipment and separate installations. It also caused the occasional headache. Each household would be given its own unique ringtone so as to distinguish between which calls were meant for whom. But there was nothing stopping a noisy neighbor from listening in on a conversation meant for someone else. Members of a party line would have to cooperate with one another by making sure they didn't hog the line when someone else needed it. Hoffman thought of his Zinn as a kind of party line, a means to disseminate economically and politically disruptive information to a community of cooperative sharing members of the anti-establishment sort. Al Bell saw in it a means of connecting technologists from different parts of the country and building collective knowledge. These were two very different people with very different goals, and so the earliest iterations of EPL were a kind of mashup of tech tips and radical left-wing politics, calls for fundraising mixed with political rants and instructions on how to build pipe bombs. The glue that bound it all together, though, was freaking. Malicious Life is sponsored by Cyberism, an end-to-end cybersecurity solution built to empower defenders. So how does Cyberism empower defenders? Here's John Breen, head of global IT security and cyber operations at FlowServe. FlowServe is a global corporation in about 60 countries, um, nine business languages, about 20,000 employees. We make pumps, valves, and seals. And then uh, we do nuclear contracts, military contracts. Our intellectual property is extremely valuable. My entire security team has, our lives would be very different right now if it wasn't for cyber reason. I would not be sitting here talking to you. I would be sitting back at the office, cranking through 15,000 machines to get them all restored or, or purchase new ones if we had to, depending on how bad it was. So cyber reason is watching the shop, watching the 
the store while we're sleeping. And that's something that I would have to augment with staff without a platform as good as Cyber Reason. Before Cyber Reason was in our environment, we were playing a lot of whack-a-mole, so to speak, you know, trying to uh, run around and, and, and deal with things that we were understaffed, ill-equipped to handle, um, and this just really helped to fill um, the gap that we needed, not just with the managed service, but the actual solution itself is very uh, good at um, self-remediation, uh, sinkholing IPs and traffic that shouldn't be um, because it's an indicator of compromise, for example. And that's just one task that myself and my team wouldn't, don't have to do anymore. We had, in the past, many challenges around lateral movement of, of, of malops. And with Cyber Reason in place, that just doesn't exist anymore. And it's really, really good at protecting uh, from those types of threats, whether it's ransomware or any other type of malop, CNC, elevation, privilege elevation, um, I think that uh, the visibility it gets us and the um, comprehensive understanding of what the threat is and how it's moving, as well as the ability to do queries and, and, and see kind of threat patterns, how, they're, how they might be evolving or how they might have come in, um, hooking into um, uh, threat exchanges for um, hashes that are constantly coming out, uh, indicators of compromise that are constantly coming out. all put in the back end of Cyber Reason um, without us having to load it. I mean, it's just fantastic. Yeah. We love Cyber Reason. Freaking, spelled with a PH for phone, is a term used to refer to those who explore, experiment, and tamper with telephoning systems. It began in 1954 after Bell Telephone fatefully disclosed the signal frequencies which were used to control the telephone network, including long-distance calls, in a technical journal meant for the company's engineers that ended up leaking to college campuses nationwide. In 1957, Joe Engressia, a blind seven-year-old boy with perfect pitch, happened upon a discovery that he could affect the recording function of his phone by whistling into it a frequency of about 2,600 hertz. Other pioneering freakers found other means of producing 2,600 hertz, like John Draper, who earned the nickname Captain Crunch when he discovered a plastic whistle which played at 2,600 in his cereal box. By producing that particular frequency, freakers could trick Bell's systems into allowing them to place free, otherwise expensive, international calls. More advanced freaker methods developed over the following decade, including the invention of devices that could get the Bell network to do, well, just about anything. This was hacking before computers. By the late 60s, nerds and weirdos alike had formed a small but formidable freaker community. Its proponents spanned the country. Friendships and information sharing across great geographical distances proved no issue, for these were people who knew how to place free calls to wherever they liked, whenever they wished. Dedicated phone freakers like Ingressia, Draper, and among others Steve Job and Steve Wozniak were primarily motivated by technical curiosity. But as history shows, apolitical technologies always ends up twisted in the hands of those who wish to leverage it for power. 
From June 1971, the inaugural issue of Youth International Party Line begins with a declaration of purpose. Quote, We at Ipple would like to offer thanks to all you freaks out there. Ipple believes that education alone cannot affect the system, with capital S, but education can be an invaluable tool for those willing to use it. Specifically, Ipple will show you why something must be done immediately in regard, of course, to the improper control of the communication in this country by none other than the Bell Telephone Company. End quote. At the bottom of its cover page, Ipple outlines its first freaker tip, leveraging Bell's practice of sending new credit cards, today we might think of them as calling cards, to customers at the beginning of each new year. Freakers had figured out a way to forge numbers that were realistic enough to fool operators, but couldn't be tied to you when the bill came, because they didn't actually match your identity in Bell's registries. Aware that the information they were publishing on the cover of the very first issue presented some legal ambiguities for the publishers, the segment ends with a conditional. Quote, fraud is illegal. So we don't think you should make free calls. This code has already been printed in many underground papers, as you know. End quote. As a warning, it seems more than a bit disingenuous. The following article on the next page of the magazine describes how to install your very own unauthorized phone in your home. That article, too, ends with a warning that you must read in its intended sarcastic tone. Quote, Yippies have been known to fool around with shit like this from time to time without the permission of their local telephone company, and even though they usually get away with it, we at Ipple would never think of advocating that type of irresponsible activity. You should always check with your local phone company to pay them any extra money that you might be responsible to them for, before ever fooling around with your phone. The phone company is our friend, and they are here to help you. End quote. But in only five years' time, the Eeple magazine changed its name, changed its name again, and transformed its identity. It was the start of a prolonged process of decline for the once cheeky magazine. Hi there, this is the Cheshire Catalyst, known as Richard Cheshire, Cheshire Catalyst, as he's known, was a YIPL reader from its very first issue and its editor for its very last. That makes him one of the few people left on Earth qualified to speak to its history firsthand. Well, as I understand it, uh, Al Bell just looked at his uh, newsletter one day and asked himself, what's all this political crap doing in my technical newsletter? There are no public record accounts of what went on inside Ipple's office during those early years. What we do know is that on August 28, 1973, A.B. Hoffman was arrested for possession and intent to sell cocaine. He claimed the cops arranged the meeting and planted the drugs. Instead of facing the charges in court, he skipped bail and abandoned his family to run and hide from the authorities in upstate New York. He underwent plastic surgery in order to alter his appearance and often disguised himself as an Orthodox Jew. 
Amid all the madness, Hoffman could no longer lead his political party, let alone a technology magazine. That left Al Bell, the sole remaining founder of Eeple. Uh, he was a technologist. He liked uh, playing with the phone networks and uh, sharing the knowledge on that sort of thing. But this political crap was just not what he was into. He was not a revolutionary. He was not really one of the yippies. Uh, he was just helping out with the newsletter. And that's when he picked up his marbles, uh, walked out of Bleecker Street and went up Broadway, got his own loft and set up the newsletter there on Broadway. The first issue of the magazine released after Hoffman's arrest also came with a name change. Instead of Youth International Party Line, it would now be referred to as Technological American Party. Its front page editorial opens, quote, No fancy excuses. We change our name because we want people to know where we really are and what we hope to become. Technological American Party, or TAP, is rapidly becoming people's warehouse of technological information, and a name like Youth International Party Line simply didn't ring a bell, end quote. He tried to get a, a bank account open under Technological American Party, but because he was not a bona fide political party, he could not get a, a bank account, and so he changed the name again to the Technological Assistance Program, and that he was able to get a bank account for, The magazine may have transformed because of an arrest, a change in leadership, maybe even a technicality of opening a bank account. But whatever the obvious reason, there was always a change brewing underneath. The hippie movement of the late 60s that fueled Ipple had finally come to an end. The Vietnam War, which had fueled it, was winding down. Icons like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison had all died young. Richard Nixon, enemy of all things counterculture, won a temporary re-election. As the movement that folks like A.B. Hoffman so deeply believed in became absorbed into the mainstream they'd so despised, and the boomer generation, which once thought capitalistic greed, transitioned into the boomer generation that drove consumerists of the 1980s, the market for Eeple brand anti-establishment faded into the background. But while the hippie movement was in decline and Eeple magazine was having a change of heart, MCI, Bell's business rival in the world of telecommunications, wasn't prepared to go down without a fight. MCI approached the FCC and asked it to intervene and put a stop to Bell's monopolistic behavior, to force Bell to connect MCI's relay system to its national telephone system. While the FCC debated and debated the matter for months, Bell wasn't sitting idly. To make life even harder for MCI, Bell decided that negotiations about interconnection tariffs will be handled on a per-state basis. In practice, that meant that MCI would have to fight Bell in each one of 49 different jurisdictions, which will probably take years and force MCI to spend an insane amount of money on legal costs. This was very bad news for MCI, which already spent millions of dollars on the legal battle with Bell and its parent company, AT&T. In fact, the industry joke was that MCI had more lawyers than landlines, and it became known as, quote, a law firm with an antenna on the roof. 
And so MCI decided to go all in and in 1974 filed an antitrust lawsuit against AT&T. The FCC eventually joined the lawsuit and sided with MCI. But as you're probably aware, these kinds of legal battles can take years. And it did. In six years, the case barely went through the evidence phase. By 73-74, the hippies had largely moved on, and freakers, nerds, and miscellaneous brainiacs had taken over. These folks weren't so keenly interested in taking down the man. When Ippel became TAP, it reflected a larger shift away from the political affiliations, the mission, that it once had. From issue 25, quote, TAP is no longer Technological American Party. TAP is TAP. We are not a political party. We do not advocate anything as an organization. End quote. Al Bell left the magazine not so long thereafter. Well, I grew up in Rochester, New York, and that's where I first got my subscription to the newsletter at my post office box at Midtown Plaza in Rochester. Then I moved to Boston for a year, 75, then in 76 moved to the city, and I kept filing a change of address with the magazine, uh, the newsletter rather. Then finally, a year after I got to New York, I finally went down to uh, meet the gang at the Broadway office. Uh, by that time, they were out of the Yipple offices on Bleecker Street, and uh, Al Bell had left the, uh, the newsletter himself. That left Tom Edison as the editor-in-chief with a few hangers-on, by 1977, TAP was just a group of guys operating out of a stuffy office space in a rundown building off of Bryan Park in Midtown Manhattan. They had a mailbox, getting together once a week to hang out, talk, write, and print. We were constantly invited by the newsletter to come on up to the office on Broadway any uh, Wednesday evening and uh, help uh, paste up or... Uh, answer mail or whatever odd jobs were available. And uh, after living in the city for a year, I finally went up down to uh, Broadway, uh, dropped in, and uh, basically started hanging out with the group. As to the folks, there was a mixture of high school students. Um, we had an aerospace engineer from out of town that would come in and uh, hang out with us because uh, he liked to know what was going on and uh, you know what he had to protect his company from. Walking in any given week, you probably wouldn't peg this motley crew of dorks and hippies as anything much to worry over. Even today, you can hear it in Cheshire's voice. It's the kind of voice you can imagine talking about science fiction or old pennies. It's hard to imagine Cheshire talking about taking down the man or inciting any kind of violence. Or being under... FBI investigation. From the beginning, Ippel slash DAP had been under the eyes of at least a couple of enforcement agencies. The New York Telephone Company had sought out legal action against the publication for disseminating information harmful to their business. They'd taken their inquiry all the way up to the Attorney General of New York, but were turned off on the grounds that their claim would have violated freedom of the press. 
1973, the FBI took note of this dispute. A freedom of information request revealed internal documents from 2006 in which the FBI tried to connect the dots between youth international parties' more radical tendencies, A.B. Hoffman's arrest, and the TAP magazine. The investigation continued for years until at least 1980. It turned out that at least one leading member of TAP whose name was reducted from the documents, had been actively cooperating with the Bureau. We had one fellow known as Al the Chemist, and uh, I always swore that he was probably the uh, FBI mole in the organization. So why all this fuss? Well, the investigation had begun on the basis of phone freaking, but after some digging, the FBI believed it had evidence that TAP and its editors were distributing information on how to construct deadly explosives. Quote, on April 27, 1979, the New York office of the Federal Bureau of Investigations was in receipt of information that a meeting sponsored by the Technological American Party literature was distributed which described the mechanics of constructing an atomic bomb. Copies of this literature were forwarded to the Department of Energy for its analysis as to the legitimacy of these plans. The Department of Energy completed its analysis by concluding that there was a possibility that such a device could give a nuclear yield." End quote. Cheshire was a writer for the magazine at the time. Somebody sent us a poster about how to build a nuke. And Tom asked me whether we should publish this, and I said, you know what, this information could take out the phone network, and that's not what we're about. We're into using the phone network, but not destroying it. Al the Chemist was the fellow I had pegged as the FBI mole in our organization. And um, I was almost hoping he really was an FBI mole, because I would rather have them knowing what we were doing, and more importantly, what we were not doing, than have them sitting around their federal building office worrying about us. We were just publishing the stuff. We uh, didn't go out and do anything that uh, could worry them. For a publication that had tried to excise its political roots long ago, TAP was now embroiled in a federal investigation into potential terrorism and things only got more serious from there. 1983. Tom Edison was a school teacher in New Jersey at the time that he was editor-in-chief of TAP. Unlike his predecessors in the position, Tom was neither an ideologue nor a strong personality. After years of brewing tension surrounding the magazine, politics, investigations, legalities, something just cracked. Um, I got a phone call uh, one day from Tom, who said, uh, listen, I need you to pick, get a truck, pick up all this crap out of my basement and get it out of here, or else it's all going in the trash because my apartment has just been firebombed. The cops said it was a very professional break-in, and the fire marshal said it was a very amateur arson. Uh, the fellows had uh, poured some uh, kerosene, gasoline, whatever, in the middle of his den, lit it, and left. And it took out a bunch of his reel-to-reel music tapes, uh, including some Beatles music and some other stuff that was just priceless. But 
they didn't open the windows. So um, once the uh, fire had eaten up all the oxygen, it pretty much burned out. But just before it did, it blew out the windows. And uh, that's when the neighbors saw the fire and called the fire department. This is the most remarkable and unbelievable part of the Eppel TAP story. Why Tom was targeted, who did it, and who they were working for. To this day, there are no clues, only theories. Uh, it is known, however, that the telephone companies tend to hire ex-FBI agents as their security personnel, and those guys usually have contacts uh, for uh, people who know how to break into places, but who may not necessarily know how to uh, fire a good arson. Um, so we always had these conjectures, but we never pursued it. We never had the, the means to pursue that, and we had a newsletter to put out. This incident marked the end of TAP. With other, more important things to deal with, Tom Edison left his post at the magazine, giving it entirely to Cheshire. By this time, most of the infrastructure around them was gone, and Cheshire was essentially running it all on his own. After a couple more editions, he could carry the torch no longer. 111 issues down and 13 years running, TAP officially ended. But on New Year's Eve 1983, after a decade-long legal battle between the US government and AT&T, Pa Bell was no more. MCI's legal challenge turned out to be the beginning of the end for the once all-powerful monopoly. The US government, once a willingful ally of Bell, had finally reached the conclusion that Bell's long-standing monopoly is indeed a threat to innovation. With the government's support gone, Bell's leaders understood that the fight was lost and agreed to break the company up. From the New York Times, quote, The phone company that customers have loved or hated for 107 years will be no more. It will be an unprecedented moment. The biggest company in the world will find itself dismembered. End quote. One large telephone operation became 22 Baby Bell companies. After 12 years, the vision of A.B. Hoffman and his hippie revolutionaries had finally, in a way, been achieved. It surely wasn't the socialist takeover they may have wanted, but it was something. In a way, though, it was a fitting end. As the doors closed on TAP, they opened for another new hacker magazine called 2600 The Hacker Quarterly. Cheshire, for one, has been writing for them ever since. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you wish to read the full transcript of this and all the previous episodes, they are all available on our website, malicious.life. If you have an interesting idea for a future episode of Malicious Life, let me know. You can find me on Twitter at, at @ranlevi, R-A-N-L-E-V-I, and via email at ran at ranlevy.com. Follow at Malicious Life for updates on new episodes. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.